Scripture reading is from Psalm 19, verses 1 through 6. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them He has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Okay, good morning. Today we continue our emphasis on worship by focusing on nature and how pondering and studying creation might augment our appreciation of its creator. Because at the end of the day, we are going to worship the thing to which we ascribe the most worthship. As we mentioned last week, our English word worship derived from this now antiquated word worthship. What is most worthy of your devotion? What's most worthy of your trust, your adoration, your worship? As we've seen in recent lessons, the answer should be God. In reality, however, sometimes we're more passionate about and more devoted to other things. We find other things more glorious than God. So over the next few weeks, we want to consider ways we might cultivate a greater sense of God's glory. We'll be asking, how can we develop a more enlarged view of the glory of God? What are some of God's attributes or acts that would warrant greater worship of Him and elicit greater devotion to Him? Well, one good place to start is Psalm 19. The first half of this psalm points us to creation, to nature, and it can draw connections for us between the world God created and worship of God the Creator. What Psalm 19 says in the first half of this psalm is that nature is speaking to us about God. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims His handiwork. And it goes on and on with this kind of language. God is speaking to us through His created works. And so, this raises three important questions about this connection between worship and nature. Psalm 19, first half of the, of the psalm, is what we'll be looking at for a few minutes this morning. And it raises three important questions. First of all, why is it important to listen to nature? Why is it important to listen to nature? The answer is that there is a sense in which nature is God's voice. Notice all the communication words, all the language-related terms in the first few verses of Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. That's a a term of communication. The sky or the firmament, the expanse above proclaims His handiwork. These heavenly bodies are pouring out speech. Night into night reveals. Though they don't have an audible voice, these aspects of creation, these heavenly bodies, have a voice, verse 4 says, and their words are going out to the end of the world. And so this is very much about 
something being communicated. But the something, the medium through which the, this communication occurs is creation. It's nature. The point is that God is speaking to us through nature. Nature is, is a kind of revelation from God and a revelation of God. The Jewish Study Bible's margin comments on Psalm 19 basically sum it up this way. Creation is, the commentator writes, a theophany. Creation is a theophany. The word theophany means a manifestation of God, a vision or an appearance of God. And so what the psalmist is saying in no uncertain terms, in fact, with a certain degree of redundancy in Psalm 19, 1 through 4, is that God's created works, nature, creation, are speaking to us loud and clear. They're revealing something to us in no uncertain terms. Now, somebody may react to this by saying, now, now wait a minute. I, I thought God spoke to humanity through His Word. I thought God's communication was through Scripture. And that is certainly true. But God also speaks to us through nature. He has, as it were, two books that He has written, you might say. In fact, this is exactly how Francis Bacon um, conceptualized God's revelation to humanity back in um, the 16th and 17th century. Francis Bacon, of course, is considered the father of, of empirical science. Um, and he basically said that you can think about God's two revelations, uh, His Word and His works, Scripture and nature, as two separate books authored by the same divine, divine mind. In 1605, he wrote this, Let no man think or maintain that a person can search too far or be too well studied in the book of God's Word or in the book of God's works, in Scripture or in nature. And that's an interesting way to look at this. And I think it's true. It's what Psalm 19 itself is doing. Look what Psalm 19 does in the first half of, uh, of the psalm. We've already uh, heard this read a minute ago. Uh, psalm 19, 1 through 6 all, is all about creation and how that is speaking to us and telling us things about God. And then in Psalm 19, verses uh, 7 um, and following, he changes gears, the psalmist does, and says, The law of the Lord is perfect, the testimony of the Lord, the precepts, the commandment, the rules, all of these things. So the first half of the psalm is about God's first book, his more general revelation of nature. The second part of this very psalm is about God's more specific revelation in Scripture. Well, what is the fundamental message of nature? If it's speaking to us on behalf of God, what is its central message? Look at Psalm 19, verse 1. Here is what nature is telling us. In the case of Psalm 19, the heavens. The heavens are declaring the glory of God. The glory of God. Here's that word that we keep coming back to over and over again as we focus on worship in uh, this calendar year. The word glory, as we've said many times now, impresses upon us or, or comes from the Hebrew word chabod. And so what, what we're reading here is that nature is impressing upon us as observers God's chabod, His glory. That word means His weightiness, His substance, His copiousness. It also sometimes has the idea of His brilliance or honor, but the core idea is God's weightiness, His substantiveness. And so this is why this is so important for our worship. The book 
quote-unquote, of God's creation is telling us of God's glory. And there is a whole genre of creation psalms. David, the author of Psalm 19, wrote five others, in fact. Uh, Psalm 8, Psalm 29, Psalm 65, Psalm 104, Psalm 139. Four of these six psalms, these creation psalms, use the word glory. They all suggest that creation is revealing to us God's weightiness, His glory. And all six of these creation psalms draw worship-related lessons from creation. But can we drill down a bit more deeply? Can we flesh out more fully just how nature testifies to God's glory? Our second question then is this. Precisely what is nature teaching us about God? What is it teaching us about God? Well, first and foremost, nature is telling us that God exists. It is teaching us that there is a God in the first place. Notice that the heavens are pointing not to their own glory. Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. There are a lot of agnostic and perhaps even atheistic astronomers who look at the heavens as a matter of their daily career, uh, who write articles and produce documentaries, and they may talk about how glorious the heavens are, how glorious their orbits are and their movements, and how glorious are the stars and the constellations and the galaxies and the things that they train their powerful telescopes upon. But this, isn't, this psalm isn't just saying that the heavens are glorious. It's saying the heavens declare the glory of God. There's someone behind the heavens, beyond the heavens, who has produced their glories. And this is echoed by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1 and verse 20, when he's talking about how paganism had developed over the centuries and really was without excuse because everyone should be able to tell that there is a God. Romans 1, um, this should be... Uh, that should say verses 19 and 20 there. For what can be known about God, Paul writes, is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Well, how has he shown his existence to these, these people, to human observers? Verse 20, Romans 1.20 says, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. In other words, God has certain invisible attributes, namely the two identified here, his eternal power and his divinity, the fact that he is God. He's not just human or part of nature. He is divine. Those two attributes of God can be perceived, though they are invisible, perhaps on their own, through creation, through, quote, the things that have been made, these attributes of God are made abundantly clear. So the point is we're not alone in this world. There is a God above it all. There is a God beyond it all. God exists and nature tells us that. In addition to God's existence, nature also exhibits God's artistry. His artistry. Look at the second half of Psalm 19 verse 1. The sky above, the psalmist writes, proclaims His handiwork. God's handiwork, God's artistry, God's artistic skill. 
Do you think of God as an artist? Apparently, God really likes beauty. When he was given the instructions for building his temple, God's own abode on earth, his own house, in Exodus 31, 1 through 6, he goes to some length to endow people with artistic abilities to be able to outfit his house in a way that is incredibly beautiful. Look at Psalm, I'm sorry, Exodus 31, beginning in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God. Now, normally in the Bible, when we think of somebody being filled with the Spirit of God, there's going to be a divine revelation, a communication. It's a prophet. It's a, a writer of a New Testament epistle. Somebody is being filled with the Holy Spirit to speak on God's behalf, behalf or have an utterance from God or to convey knowledge on behalf of God to that person or through that person to other people. Here, though, God is filling some human being with the Spirit of God to give them ability and intelligence with knowledge and all craftsmanship, verse 4, to devise artistic designs. So a Holy Spirit-inspired artist is what he's saying. A person who can, quote, work in gold, silver, and bronze, and cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood to work in every craft. And behold, I have appointed with him Oholiab, the son of Ahisamach, of the tribe of Dan, and I have given to all able men ability that they may make all that I have commanded you. God is very interested in beauty. He uses his own spirit to endow certain temple artisans with artistic skill. I want you to zero in as well on the word ability that appears in verse 3. He has filled, uh, using the Spirit of God, he has filled with ability, Bezalel, and given ability down in verse 6 to all these other people who will be working with him. Now this word ability, you may have the word wisdom there, comes from a Hebrew word, chokmah, chokmah. And this is the same Hebrew word used in one of those creation psalms I told you about a minute ago. So Psalm 104 is a lot like Psalm, one, uh, Psalm 19, rather, in Psalm 8 that we looked a few weeks ago, in that these psalms all are extolling the beauty and wonder and glory that God's creation reflects back on God. So, for instance, in Psalm 104, one of these creation psalms, we read this. O Lord, how manifold are your works. There's that first book of God, the book of his works. In wisdom have you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. So it's a psalm extolling the beauty and wonder of God's creation, how everything reflects back on God. But this word wisdom is the exact same Hebrew word, chokmah, that God used to endow with artistic talents Bezalel and the other temple artists and artisans so that he could be surrounded in his house with beauty. The point is this, the same artistic ability that God gave temple artisans to make his own house artistically beautiful, God himself uses to make nature artistically beautiful. And indeed, when we examine the cosmos, some aspects of nature just seem gratuitously awe-inspiring. They've just always been there, emitting their beauty, eon after eon, waiting on someone to have the ability to discover them. Take the Hubble Space Telescope, for instance. This telescope that you know, is above us in the heavens, that is taking these wonderful images of the faraway distant galaxies and parts of, of the cosmos. In 2004, 
the Hubble Space Telescope was trained on a relatively blank spot in the Fornax constellation. This is in the southern sky. Um, and <clears throat> what it found was downright amazing. This is an image called the, Hu the Hubble Ultra Deep Field. This was a supposedly blank area of the cosmos. Not, ma not many stars to look at in this place at which it pointed, at which the, the Hubble Space Telescope was pointed. But it turns out there were 10,000 galaxies. All the little uh, you know, stars and lights you see in this image are not stars, actually. They're galaxies. So it revealed 10,000 galaxies, each of which might have millions of stars or more in a place that formerly appeared blank. But there is a third thing that nature shows us about God. In addition to his existence and his artistry, nature reveals to us, or at least reminds us of, God's faithfulness. God's, good, his, God's goodness. In Psalm 19, verse 6, we read this. Beginning in verse 4, In them, that is in the heavens, God has set a tent for the sun. He says, the sun comes out like a bridegroom, leaving his chamber, you know, in the morning, and like a strong man or a warrior, runs its course with joy. Its course meaning its track in the firmament. That's how they looked at the world back then. He thought it had sort of a track and it ran across and then circled under and came back each day. But he says, this is doing this from one end of the heavens and its circuit is to the end of them. And notice verse 6, and there is nothing hidden from the heat of the sun. Nothing is hidden. No plant. No animal, no human, nothing is hidden from the warming, nourishing heat of the sun, which daily, reliably crosses the sky above the head of human beings. That's a God of goodness, a God of blessing and faithfulness. Jesus in Matthew 5, 45, sort of echoed this in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, The heavenly Father makes his sun rise on the evil and the good. So there's a, an element of grace in this. You don't have to earn it or merit it. You just wake up. You exist, and you're warmed by God's good Son. In Jeremiah 31, God is trying to make the point to Israel, to His own chosen people, that He will never forsake them. And He has them look at the fixed order of the heavenly bodies as evidence as, il as an illustration of his faithfulness to his people. Here's what it says. Jeremiah 31, beginning in verse 35. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day, and the fixed order of the moon and stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. And here's what he says to Israel. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. In other words, my people are always going to be my people. I will be faithful to them, as faithful as the fixed order of the movement of the heavenly bodies. My love and acceptance of my people is as reliable as the sun rising and the sun setting, the heavenly bodies moving through their ordained paths. And folks, we especially need this reminder of God's faithfulness. When things get tough, when we face an uncertain future and anxiety, when circumstances make it harder to sense God's glory, when other things seem more weighty than God, 
Jesus' solution, also in the Sermon on the Mount, is look around you. If you're anxious, if you're worried, if you're fearful, look around you. Study nature. Look what he says in Matthew 6, verse 25. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. In verse 28 of Matthew 6, Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? And notice that he says, verse 29, Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. He's pointing to this idea of glory. He says you can see God's glory in the birds. You can see God's glory in the flowers. Here the old farmer poet of Kentucky, Wendell Berry, in a poem called The Peace of Wild Things, I think he captures the same sentiment there. When despair for the world grows in me and I wake in the night at the least sound in fear of what my life and my children's lives may be, I go and lie down where the wood drake rests and his beauty on the water and the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the presence of still water and I feel above me the day blind stars waiting with their light. For a time I rest in the grace of the world and I am free. So God says repeatedly to us, creation is revealing my glory. From the faraway heavens to the flowers of the field, from the supernova to the sparrow, there is God's handiwork. Nature is speaking. It is declaring God's glory. And that raises our third question. Are we listening? It may seem counterintuitive, but one of the best things you can do when facing anxiety is to become a careful student of nature. Take your focus off your fear and redirect it to creation. Somebody shared with, uh, shared with us this week, uh, Cherie pointed this out on Facebook or something like that. One of our, I think it was maybe Debbie Lanham, one of our church members uh, shared something that they'd heard from uh, a podcast or read in a blog or something like that. And, and, I'll, and I'll quote it if I remember it correctly. It's this, if you feed your fear, your faith will starve. If you feed your faith, your fear will starve. Well, Jesus told those who were having anxiety, who were having faith problems, people that he addressed as, oh, you of little faith. What did he say to them? Go ahead and game plan how to attack your fears. No, he said, take your gaze off your fear and consider nature. He said to those of little faith, look at the birds. <laughs> consider the lilies. Natural phenomena. And Psalm 19 says that to consider God's awesome works in nature is to listen to God, to have God reorient our perspective, to take our focus off our fears, and to build faith for knowing that there is a God behind all of this awesome wonder that is just pervasive throughout the created order. 
God's glory is being declared. Now, let me close by suggesting some reasons that we may not be hearing this declaration. That the revelation of God's glory through nature might fall on deaf ears. Why might that be? Well, first of all, we might be too removed from it. Too removed from it. The psalmist takes for granted, after all, that human beings are regularly exposed to the wonders of the heavens. He's not saying, hey, guess what? There are stars in the heavens. You ever notice that? Go outside and look up. No, he's assuming they see the stars all the time, that they're exposed to that on a regular daily basis. But what if they're not? What if the modern world we've created detaches us more and more and more from nature? Just the society and the world that we modern human beings have created. Light pollution hides the stars. What if every last inch of meadowland where these flowers of the field are growing and displaying God's glory, what if they've all been cleared for single row crops? What if the forests have been replaced with concrete jungles? Neil deGrasse Tyson, who grew up in New York City, talks about this problem. He says, I have never in my life seen the Milky Way galaxy from within the city limits of New York City. And I was born and raised here. If you observe the night sky from light-drenched Times Square, you might see a dozen or so stars compared with the thousands that were visible in the 17th century. He's talking about when New York was first being colonized by, it was New Amsterdam or New Netherlands then, but you know, a handful of people walking up and down Manhattan Island, seeing thousands of stars. Now you can see a handful. No wonder ancient peoples shared a culture of sky lore. Whereas modern peoples who know nothing of the night sky instead share a culture of evening TV. And what about our lifestyle? Not just the modern world we've created, but what if our lifestyle removes us and detaches us from God's created order and its wonders? You know, we've been made to change our lifestyles here of late due to uh, this present distress, to use a biblical phrase. But even when we get back to our old normal, this, quote, normal is not necessarily so conducive to considering God's creation. And that's due to the place that our lives happen and the pace at which our lives happen. The, pla the, pace, the, the, sorry, the place where our lives happen is mostly indoors for a good many of us. We're just physically not in touch with nature. And the pace of our lives is a problem too often. We don't permit ourselves to slow down and observe things. Adam McHugh, in a little book called The Listening Life, writes this, God spoke creation into existence, and now creation speaks of His existence. Because creation is born of God's speech, all our exploration and hikes and study and enjoyment of nature is a sacred act of listening. Listen to that. Since God is the one who spoke creation into existence and it is speaking about Him, as Psalm 19 says, then anytime you or I explore or hike or study or enjoy nature, what we're doing is a, as an act of sacred listening. And let me zero in here on the words highlighted in yellow. The study of nature 
the study of nature as an act of sacred listening. I want to close with a word about science. Why science? What does that have to do with all this? Well, science is essentially just the most careful, sustained study of nature. It's based in a systematic analysis of, of empirical evidence from nature. Science can be a huge help in listening and helping us listen more closely to nature's voice. It's like an amplifier. It's like a megaphone saying, hey, check this out. This is even more awesome than you thought. We've been looking at it for years. We've been studying this aspect of nature, you know, wh whatever it is, and check this out. It amplifies it. And it can edify us spiritually. I think of the Hubble Space Telescope and its ability to show us things about stars that were even more beautiful than we knew before with the naked eye. Or the way biology can be consulted to make videos, nature videos, like the Planet Earth series. These are really edifying. We get to go see parts of nature that we don't see on our own, in our own little neck of the woods. And what about health advances? The help that we get from genetic medicines and vaccines. We have science to thank for all of that. Did any of us discover DNA in the 50s? No, but we're all expecting on the horizon all sorts of, uh, you know, gene therapies. What about the germ theory of disease discovered, you know, just barely 100 years ago or, or, or a little more? This is where we get virology and bacteriology and all the vaccines that we're hopeful for. We're not creating those. Science is doing this. And the reason all of that stuff works is simple. Scientists are studying evidence that God created. It's real, folks. It's real. Science is real because it's studying reality that God made. But science sometimes faces an uphill battle in society. One of the ways it does, you can see this in quack science. I read an article just a few weeks ago that in India, right when the coronavirus was breaking, uh, there were certain Hindu fundamentalists who were advocating the, the, uh, the use of cow dung as a cure for coronavirus. If you just spread cow dung and I think cow urine, uh, I mean, you might as well, if you've already got the dung, go, go with the urine too. You know, it's, it's the nastiest thing you can imagine. It's disgusting. It, the idea was that will keep you from the effects of the coronavirus. Now, that isn't incorrect just because it's disgusting or counterintuitive. Lots of scientific truths are very counterintuitive. They're very strange when they first break on the public scene and then later on we take them for granted. It's incorrect not because it's counterintuitive, it's incorrect because it's not grounded in data. It's not grounded in the evidence of nature. And there's also an anti-science streak, a certain anti-science streak in our own culture. Americans have a kind of love-hate relationship with science. We live off of it, we excel in it, our technology is some of the best in the world, and yet you find all of these sort of anti-science sentiments as well. And, and, and frankly, sometimes these are found in Christian circles. Somebody will say something like, well, science is wrong sometimes. Well, sure it is. Science would be the first to admit that. The whole point is they, they're using evidence, and so they're revising continually. And guess what? Theology is wrong sometimes as well. Theology is another word for Bible study. So you can, you can be wrong in your conclusions about the Bible. You can be wrong in your conclusions about nature. That doesn't mean the whole project of Bible study is wrong. Or that I can just cherry-pick the results of the Bible study that fit my preconceived understanding. 
Otherwise, what I may be hearing is not so much the voice of God as just an echo of my own voice. So in both theology and science, the study of God's Word and the study of God's works, folks, we must ever tune our ear to what God is saying. That's the evidence. What God is saying, what He has said, and He is speaking in nature and He is speaking in Scripture, and we should draw conclusions based on the evidence of both. God has spoken. He continues to speak through the wonders of His creation, from the stars above us to the soil below us, and all of this is redounding to His great glory, a glory which warrants the most devoted worship. But awesome as it is, nature is not enough. We need another, more specific revelation from God. And it's to that revelation, the revelation of Scripture, to which we will turn our attention next week. Thank you.